Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Beth Morrison launched her production company to create space for diverse artists. 60 world premieres later, Beth Morrison Project's intimate and cutting-edge operas share universal stories. Listen as Beth Morrison and musicologist Dr. Christy Brown Montesano dig deeper into why these works are so important for longtime opera lovers and those new to the art form. Catch the West Coast premiere of our off-grand double bill, Trade and Mary Motorhead, playing April 27th through 30th, 2023. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. Hello, I'm Dr. Christy Brown Montesano, an affiliated scholar with Los Angeles Opera. And I'm delighted today to be able to speak with one of my heroes in the opera world, Beth Morrison, the president and creative producer at Beth Morrison Project. Beth, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, great. Thank you, Christy. It's nice to be here with you. And I'm always happy to be here with LA Opera. We're here this week with our project, Trade Mary Motorhead. This is our 10th year of working with LA Opera. It's our 13th project. I founded Beth Morrison Projects 18 years ago with the sort of express purpose of shaking up the opera industry, really trying to sort of disrupt the way of thinking at that time to really focus on um, women composers and composers of color, to focus on telling stories of our time, to focus on um, working with living composers that are interested in working in a way that was different than the folks that came before them and really creating work that feels of our time. We're still going. BMP tours work. So we are touring worldwide. Our homes are New York, South Brooklyn, and Los Angeles. That's a little bit about me. I mean, I'm a former singer and voice teacher and creative producer is where I sit right now, which is sometimes a term that people don't really know, but it's a term that means that I work very closely with the artists in the sort of creation period, in the workshopping period, and sort of another voice around the creative table, if you will. And then my company, which now has 14 staff members, we do all of the logistics of the producing, including all the fundraising, all the contracting, all of the the touring uh, logistics, all of the design builds, pretty much everything from concept to how it gets on the stage and how it goes around the world. We yeah, so I think that's a good introduction. It's, it's a fabulous one. And I I have to say, I remember when you were here for Matthew O'Coin's Eurydice, I think, and there was a panel that I was moderating that you were on. And I remember hearing something you said that really struck me at the time, and, and I'd like to touch on that and then maybe have a follow-up question. You attended something, you were you were very interested in opera, you'd worked as a vocalist, you were, you know, trained in that way, and uh, opera, music, theater, both. And you went somewhere, I'm trying to think of what, it was a conference or a meeting, and you said, and I didn't see anybody like me in the room. And that really struck me, it's it stuck in my head, your experience, and that this pushed you to create something, to create a space for yourself and other women and a more diverse representation in the art world. Could you just talk about that kind of moment? 
It was in 2008. It was, um, I was two years into my company and I walked into the room and I just, you know, listened to the conversation, which at that moment was all about why we can't do new work. And I, you know, left the conference just saying, these are not my people. Like this is my art form, but these are not my people. And I need to do this in a different way. And that just sort of, sort of just encouraged me and solidified for me what I already knew, which was I was going to have to blaze my own trail. Now, here we are all these years later, almost 20 years later, the field has changed dramatically. You know, the Metropolitan Opera had now several articles in the New York Times about how they're putting a focus on the presentation, the production, the commissioning of contemporary opera. In some ways, I was like, oh, I feel like I did it. Like, this was really what I was pushing at and pushing for. And we were a huge part of the change in the industry. Of course, we weren't all of it, but we were a big part of it. You know, we gathered folks along the way to kind of join the movement. And and really now every major company and even smaller companies are, are doing new work of some sort. And so... It's such an exciting thing to see and to understand that enormous sea change that has happened in the industry. There are also now, not enough, but many, many more women who are artistic leaders, general directors of opera companies. At the time, there were like, I think there was one when I started. And, you know, you see very often in the arts that women have to start their own companies if they want to be afforded the opportunity to have an artistic voice and artistic vision. Very often women are sort of saddled with the number two position of management and not given the opportunity to have artistic leadership. In Europe, it's changed a lot. In our country, you know, this change is still slow, but it is happening. And I'm hopeful. Um that uh, things will continue to change over the next 10 years and that we'll really see a parity in artistic leadership between men and women and non-binary and um, really an opportunity for different perspectives to be setting the artistic agenda. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. In, in all of your time with the company, with BMP, the, the hype is a lot of people say, oh, you know, the change maker. But honestly, when I look at the list of projects that your group has put forward, that has supported, gotten on the ground, and then basically introduced to international stages, it has been, as a music historian, thinking, you know, someday people are going to be looking at this and saying, this was the moment, you know, this group in, in the United States change history. That's not false praise. That's completely valid. <laughs> that makes me all teary. Thank you. Oh, good. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm thinking, you know, it's really, I look at it and, and, you know, I, I was talking uh, earlier and saying, I really have such admiration because like you say, if you have to decide in a way to create a place where you can helm the artistic and creative side of it, which is often where there's still a, a high degree of gatekeeping. And uh, that, I think, is just, it's phenomenal. And and looking at, like I said, I think you've done more than 50 projects now or something like that. I think we're at 60 world premieres now, which is kind of mind-blowing. <laughs> 60 in less than 20 years. So, I mean, if you think about that, and, and 60 that are getting traction, that, like you said, they're being produced 
And it's making uh, houses and companies a little more brave about taking this on because they, you know, you were able to show it can be done if you're really devoted to it and it's not treated as a kind of one-off, if it is the thing, if it's the main act for you and you put that energy. So women and non-binary and (laughs) non-white creators trying to enter the field is certainly one of the places opera is still revving into change. Because I was thinking, are there other continuing challenges that you see for Western opera and music theater in general, or some other developments that you're really excited about that, or even something recent that you felt like, oh, that's, that's terrific. The things that I think are still barriers to entry for this art form are cost, price of tickets, which tend to be exorbitantly high for sort of the average working class or middle class person. And then also venue, location. So, so, so often opera companies only exist in big cities. And so the majority of America who doesn't live in the big cities really has very little opportunity to see this work. I'll credit Peter Gelb with creating the, the HD program at the Met, which brings their programming to film houses uh, around the world. And um, and it's really, you know, an opportunity to see work done at that sort of spectacle scale um, and to introduce folks primarily to the traditional canon. But there are some of the new works that have been put into the HD program as well at the Met. And Um, And certainly given their statement that they're going to be really centering new work, um, I can imagine that the HD program is going to also carry that forward. So I think those are the two biggest barriers of entry. And also just in general, the traditional canon, the barrier to entry of just not seeing yourself in that, you know, as the majority of our country um, is non-white. And so I think, you know, the idea of really, you know, centering stories that are not typically told in opera is the thing that we've always focused on. And I think that that is something that has really been picked up now um, in other companies. And I'm, I'm very hopeful that that will mean that we will have a much easier on-ramp for folks who are maybe curious about what opera is and may take a chance if they see um, an artist that looks like them um, either on the stage or behind, you know, in terms of the writing. So those are the things that I think are the challenges. And also um, because there's such an amazing energy around the creation of new work right now across the, the country, I think that the opportunity to have this art form continue to really evolve is there. Um, there's an interest, there's an interest in telling stories through music making, um, through singing. And I'm hopeful that that means that the art form will start to really pick up another, a new generation of supporters and, and of interest. Yeah, I, I, I definitely have seen where the issues of, of cost, uh, both for the ticket buyer and also for the producer, is a major issue. Venue, I've seen BMP's mission is to create a new American canon. And I, I love this, but it is going to require some of the productions that you've done with LA to come back. You know, I want to be able to, because I couldn't make all of them. And I'm thinking, 
you know, that chance to be able to see these these works again would be wonderful. And that's where you begin to get that next level of traction. Totally, is when they start to be repeated and um, revived. And that's happening. Many of the pieces that we've commissioned now have, you know, gone out and had many, many different productions by different companies. Missy Mazzoli's Song from the Uproar, Kamala Sankaram's Thumbprint, David T. Little's Dog Days. I could keep going. Um, there are many that have really had lives beyond our touring um, with other companies. And that, of course, is when you really know that you've done something is when it can actually enter the repertoire in a way that is bigger than what we can do on our own and with our touring partners. Well, we now have, of course, Mary Motorhead and Trade. Because you're involved in the creative aspect, could you just give us a brief, like what it's like to begin a project and then bring us up to it's now going to take the stage? Yeah, I mean, I'll also share some sort of specific um, background on this project, which is that Emma O'Halloran, who is the composer, she won our Next Generation competition. We're looking for the next generation of amazing opera and music theater composers. Emma came to the competition, which involves a call for scores. We're looking for five to 10 minute vocal works. They can be opera, they can be song cycles, they can be standalones, whatever it is, but it has to be some sort of vocal work. From that, in Emma's year, we had 117 entries. And from that, we chose 10 winners. We showcased those 10 winners in concert at National Sawdust in Brooklyn. And we assembled an industry panel, um, which included Christopher Kelsch, head of LA Opera, and a number of composers and um, some other folks. And they helped me decide who the two finalists were going to be. And so we chose two finalists. That year it was Emma O'Halloran and Michael Lancey. And we commissioned 30-minute vocal theater works from Emma and Michael. And Mary Motorhead is Emma's 30-minute vocal theater work that we commissioned from the competition. Then a year later, they wrote the piece. We set them up with industry mentors. So Missy Mazzoli, composer and Royce Fabric librettist, mentored them through the process of writing their first 30-minute opera. Then we presented those in concert, sort of workshop concert. Then we selected one of them, and I selected one of them, and that was Emma. Um, and we then commissioned an evening-length work from Emma, which for her is trade, and that is a 60-minute work. We decided in presenting them that we would present them together because they actually um, feel very closely aligned, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so Emma never thought that she would ever write opera. She never thought that she had that in her, had an understanding of how to do it, um, and was, you know, sort of scared and terrified about it. Um, and now she says that she thinks that that's what she was born to do. So that's what our competition is meant to find and support. And so um, typically when I work as a creative producer, I'm working like in every aspect of the creation of it. For Next Gen Round 2, which is specifically the creation of the 30-minute work, I step out of any sort of creative work in that process, um, but give them the mentors because I want to really see what are their instincts without 
any bias on, you know, coming from me or any like shaping on my end, I want to see like, what are their instincts for writing theater mm -hmm. through music? And that is the thing that I think Emma has in spades is just this incredible instinct of how to write theater. She chose Mary Motorhead, which is a play, a monologue, a play that was written by her uncle, Mark O'Halloran, who is a very well-reputed writer and actor from Ireland, um, award-winning playwright. He gave Emma the permission to adapt Mary Motorhead to this monodrama in operatic form. It went incredibly well and Mark was very pleased. And then of course she won. And so we, you know, we were talking about what ideas do we want, you know, for her to work on. And, you know, I said, what else does Mark have? I feel like there might be something else there. And so she brought forward trade and I read the play and I just fell in love with it. And I really could see it set to music. And so we brought Mark on to actually do the adaptation um, of the play to the libretto. And it was his first libretto. We workshopped it with him, uh, Emma, Tom Creed, the director, and myself. And we had a number of different Zoom meetings where we would read it together and, you know, we'd make comments and suggestions and whatnot. Mark would come back with another draft and we kind of did a few rounds of that. And that's kind of the process of the creation of the libretto. And once we got to the stage where the libretto was, was ready, the pandemic hit. And um, yeah, Emma kept going though. And she like remarkably like created a MIDI track of the aria for the older man, which is played by Mark Kudish. And she and Mark worked and Mark like had a setup in his living room, you know, to record it. Um, and they recorded it. And so we ended up with this like scratch demo of his aria, which is the first thing that she sent to me. And I just was like totally floored and completely overwhelmed with how extraordinary it was. And I just was like, just like, out of my mind giddy that this is how she had advanced as a composer. And you'll hear the wonderful growth between the pieces, Mary Motorhead you'll hear first um, and Trade you'll hear second. And you'll hear sort of the growth of the, of the work. Trade is very much about the unspoken moments. She dramatizes this sort of nervousness, anxiety, awkwardness, of the conversation so beautifully in the music writing. Um, I think that's one of the things that she did so brilliantly, many, many things brilliant in this piece, but like, that's a really hard thing to do. And she really nailed it. There are also extraordinary electronics in the project, um, in, the, in the piece, which are created by her husband, Alex Dowling. Um, and they work as a team together. He's tremendous with the creation of these electronics, which form both um, in Mary Motorhead and in Trade. We also had like a major music workshop. So typically the way we work is we do libretto workshop, then we do, you know, two or three generally music workshops. Some of those will be full orchestra, some of those will be piano. Because of COVID, that process became condensed into one music workshop. Um, and it was uh, a year ago, August, 
And we basically played the full score with Trinity Wall Street, who's our partner on the project. Mm -hmm. And we were supposed to have the Irish with us, but they couldn't get to us. So they were on Zoom um, and they were, I mean, it was just, you know, all the craziness of the pandemic. And we had these incredible software programs that allowed us to be able to hear each other in sort of real time and, you know, just really grateful that the software existed so that we could get the work done that we needed to get done, um, even without having them sitting in the room. Um, so we premiered the piece in January, um, this past January, in my festival prototype in New York City. It was a huge hit, a huge success. I love the quote that Musical America had in the headline of their review, which was prototype unveils an important new composer. And I could not have asked for anything better than that. That sort of summed it up. And it's interesting because you're taught, well, first of all, it's, that's a whole other discussion is how COVID really inspired, forced new ways of um, being creative and continuing creative projects um, for so many people around the world. Uh, so it's kind of a testament to that, that that came through. But it also strikes me as I was looking at the, you know, Again, you usually have someone put together a 30 minute when they're in that for the for the competition. These are smaller works. And I meaning the dimensions are smaller, including the fact that you have a one character, Mary Motorhead, a one character work. And then we have a two character work. Um, this is not what people generally think of with opera. And I actually heard uh, an interview with. Emma and Mark O'Halloran talking about uh, the difficulty of the monodrama, uh, Mary Motorhead, this single um, character uh, exploration, basically, of the getting to know this character. And then the dialogue between the two characters in trade with a lot of, they've talked about the silence and really Emma's responsibility to bring out things that were unsaid. Mark, as a playwright, allowing that silence and then what to do with it. But it made me think about dimensions in general, where for so long, the big opera was the big opera. Like it it had, you know, you showed your chops by how long it could be, how grand it could be, spectacle. Like what do you think are the advantages of these more, I'll say contained, because they're no less dramatically intense, but these these smaller dimensions, let's say more intimate, focused works that uh, BMP has especially championed. Yeah, I mean, there are so many. So let's talk through this, some of them. Um, I will say, like, obviously, like cost is a huge factor. Um, opera, no matter how big or small, is incredibly expensive. But the bigger you get, the more astronomical the costs are. And so, you know, why productions, you know, with LA Opera, with the big companies, with the Met, are multi-million dollar productions to get something up because of the forces that are needed with, you know, 100-person choir and a 80-person orchestra and like these just enormous, enormous companies of people. And so I started this company um, 18 years ago by myself. I didn't have any money. I, you know, I grew up in a middle-class background. I moved to New York with like 50 bucks in my bank account. You know, it's like, there was no chance of me producing that kind of work. 
Um, so starting on, you know, with smaller scale work was essential from a financial point of view. But then there are so many artistic things that um, draw me to the smaller work. And I'll just um, harken back to our first prototype when, you know, I was really trying to start a black box opera movement, um, much in the way that um, the theater world has almost every every theater has a you know a larger stage and then a black box i was really trying to start a black box opera movement anthony tomasini who um reviewed that that year he's um now retired but was one of the main critics um for the new york times and classical and particularly opera he came to see our production of sumeda song by mohammed farouz which was put up in here uh, main stage which is my partner for the festival it's a 130 seat black box space so it's quite small and Tomasini wrote how thrilling it was to be on top of these performers, to see all of their expressions, to have their voices envelop you um, in this small space, to feel like you're part of the action. Um, because, you know, in these large spaces, the stage can feel very far away, um, particularly if you're in the mezzanines and the balconies. But even if you're in the orchestra, you know, and the Met Orchestra is very deep and you can feel very, very far removed from what's happening on the stage. So I think that's number one. You're in it. You're on top of it. You're in it. Number two, um, and this has a lot to do with the composers that I have worked with and continue to work with, a lot of them are very interested in technology. And so they're interested in electronics in their music. They're interested also in more contemporary instruments. So electric guitar um, is very often in their scores. And therefore, then we're kind of in this electronic world. And so then we tend to amplify the voices so that they're in the same world as well. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that happens when you can amplify voices is that you allow for a much different kind of acting than is typically done in opera. Because if you're trying to project your voice, and particularly in a big house, but even in a small house, you are needing to face out. And so you kind of get this kind of um, you know, what has been called park and bark style of acting for opera. Um, that is what I have always hated and what I have pushed against um, with the work of BMP. And so amplifying the voices allows you to turn your back to, I mean, Nathan, Nathan Gunn's project that we did last year with LA Opera that we premiered here. Um, in Our Daughter's Eyes by Duyun and Michael McCulkin, at one point, Nathan like literally dives under the set, like in a hole through the set and is still singing, you know, like you couldn't do that if, if he wasn't amplified. So I think like the, you know, these things all link together, but I feel that chamber opera is just a form that is more accessible in the kinds of spaces that, the, that it can be in, is more accessible in terms of how much it costs to put it on, which then will translate to ticket prices. There's just an ability to experiment more 
in a smaller space, which is what the black box theater movement did for theater and why I pushed so hard for this black box opera movement in our field, which is that's where the experimentation needs to happen. And if you're not experimenting, the art form is going to die, right? You can only be a museum for so long. Mm -hmm. So you have to have this place where experimentation can happen. We provide that. Um, and that's something that we feel um, is just essential for the field. I love that because I often talk, I was teaching an intro to opera course at UCLA and was trying to help students. And it, it really just went through the kind of, you know, Orfeo to Waltzak, right? So we didn't get into contemporary. These are students who are not music majors and they were very interested in this. The place of experimentation with, you know, the like more museum canon that we look at, which we're preserving. Um, I said that the living part of it is still the staged aspect. You can't just listen to opera. You have to go and and productions today get a lot of publicity and interest and stir a lot of interest because you may have seen many Tosca's or Lucia's, but then the production can bring something new and fresh and contemporary. And sometimes it works, sometimes it you know doesn't work as well, but it's very fresh. What I love about what you're talking about is that it's actually fully new and fresh in that you are taking the idea of opera, which is a primarily sung form of drama. So it's musical, the, the drama per musica, right? But, but you're bringing in stylistic aspects that today's listener, whether they've ever gone to an opera or not, will, will have a familiarity with. So I know there's always been a worry about anything was electroacoustic, anything that was, you know, bringing in one that really struck me because it was so it was uh, Ted Hearn's The Source. And that was uh, a completely like mind blowing moment for me. Yes, opera sung there, but the, the performers were next to you or two seats away and you're in this small space and the intimacy was almost overwhelming. It, it felt that was a huge part of it. And the electronically produced, co-produced sounds, they were familiar and new at the same time, but they definitely felt late 20th, early, early 21st century. And that's really exciting. Because somebody else just brought that up too, is one of their favorite BMP LA opera collaborations that they saw here. And that piece sits so squarely in the most experimental of experimental. And I love that people took away something so profound from it. Yeah, it, it was deeply moving and really interesting for me to think of as, you know, an opera object like what was what was it proposing in so many terrific ways and and that's the difference between uh continuing to freshen up repropose canonic works and actually introducing new ways of thinking about opera right with new works so i love that i was going to ask you also because you have another project coming up we have the book of mountains and seas yeah yeah, next season we'll do Huang Ro and Basil Twist's um, Book of Mountains and Seas. And it's a collaboration 
with um, Ali Opera and the Broad stage for the presentation out here. It's uh, West Coast premiere. BMP commissioned the work with five other companies, and we were the lead, you know, creative producer on the project um, in pulling it together. And um, we premiered it uh, in Copenhagen with um, the choir Arsnova of Copenhagen, which commissioned the work as well with us. Um, Basil Twist is a master puppeteer um, and has created this sort of magical world for the project. And the Book of Mountains and Seas is a thousands and thousands of year old tome of um, the Chinese culture that is about the planet and our relationship to the planet. Um, and it's done in a very abstract way um, in our telling of it. But it's amazing to me that that many years ago, humans were still already screwing up the planet. You know? <laughs> the giant puppet Kwafu who is chasing the sun. And as he's chasing the sun, he's drinking all the water of the rivers and the land becomes completely dry. And, you know, it's like <laughs> the consumption of our resources. Um, so yeah, it's quite amazing that we're still dealing with that all these thousands of years later, but it's a very special project, very beautiful piece. Really excited to bring it to LA and um, for it to be presented by LA Opera. This made me think of something with Mary Motorhead and trade, thinking about the stories. BMP is all about telling today's stories, or at least invoking something that feels, as you just talked about, like it's a subject that we are still grappling with. And as I was thinking about Mary Motorhead, who is in prison and mm -hmm. is reflecting her life to us, the thing that I'm looking forward to seeing is we've had women in opera who murder somebody, but it occurred to me that we never get to hear their stories afterward because they conveniently die. And Mary doesn't die and we get to hear from Mary. And I was thinking it's also stories that, you know, some of these stories, including trade where, you know, you might think of something like death in Venice or some kind of like the illicit love, you know, and some sense of like self tormenting um, desire, right. And what it means. So I wanted to ask you, since you're very close to these projects, what are some of the aspects of these two stories? So one, the woman, let's say who lives, and then the desire between this man who has lived a life that nobody realizes that he has a homosexual desire and has to illicitly, basically, secretly take this. What is it about these two works um, that you hope will provoke, let's say, conversation and awareness of how these two dramas are still relevant to questions, cultural questions, sociopolitical questions we're still dealing with? I mean, I think these are two incredibly human stories. You know, you may not, uh, you know, attempt to murder your husband, but I think what the reason that Mary says that she, you know, cracked his head open is she was trying to see if he was still in there and if she was still in there. And I feel like a lot of people can relate to relationships that have just 
where you're looking at the person, you're thinking, who are you and what has happened? How did we, how did this gulf, how did this distance arrive between us? And am I still in you? Like, am I still part of you? So I feel like a lot of people can relate to that as just a very human thing that happens in relationships. Relationships grow and they change. And I certainly relate to that. I went through an early divorce and I 100% relate relate to that, that feeling of who are you? Like, where did you go? And then I think with trade, oh gosh, trade just hits me on such a deep level that is, you know, the secrets that we keep as humans, right? We all have them. We're all carrying around things that we feel are shameful, that we don't want to share about ourselves. I don't think there's one person in this world who doesn't carry that burden for something in their life. And what happens in trade is that you discover this man's secret, both of their secrets, really, and how they just want to be accepted for who they are, secrets and all. And that they can, in that room, they can accept each other for who they are in total, not just the side of themselves that they show to their family or to their boss or to their friends, but actually who's in there, deep in there, that they, you know, in this case, feel ashamed of and don't want to share, but so deeply and profoundly want to be accepted for who they actually are. And I think those are very, very human stories and very human emotions um, that I really think everybody can relate to, honestly. Thank you so much, Beth. I know that LA Opera listeners are going to be very excited and enriched by the conversation and by all of the things that you bring to Beth Morrison Projects and the things that BMP has accomplished. Catch the West Coast premiere of our off-grand double bill, Trade and Mary Motorhead, playing April 27th through 30th, 2023. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Thank you.